Good afternoon. Welcome to this episode of Facts. If you're watching it on the podcast and if you're watching it here on YouTube, you're tuning in to explore Christianity. You can find much of our work as well as other videos and content on explorechristianity.net. Uh, we are continuing our study through the authenticity of the Gospels, looking at the Gospels from a historical criteria which is what we're going to be doing today for the Gospel of John. And then we're going to go into looking at the intrinsic reliability, or do we see that the internal evidence is compatible with the external evidence of the historical layout? And then that's what we'll do next week. Now, some of you tuning in may say, now, Stephen, you said last time when you were doing Luke's Gospel, you were going to actually jump in and do Acts next. And uh, it is true. I said that. And uh, I changed my mind about that, actually, because I have some future programs on other podcasts and other YouTube channels that I've been invited to. In order to keep these things kind of consistent, I actually moved it around and said, well, I'll just jump into John now and I'll follow Acts after John. That way it's compatible with what I'm trying to do on some other programs as well. But thanks for tuning in. As we jump right in, I'm going to introduce to you the origins of John's gospel, the one thing that I really want to focus in on today is why and when and where was John's gospel written and for what purpose? Um, you know, when you talk about John, for example, he's the fourth gospel, and that's pretty unanimous amongst the uh, early scribes and writers and historians. The question then must be asked, why did he need to write one? I mean, there were three already circulating between Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, in the churches. Why did there need to be a gospel of John, especially in the East, where Luke's gospel would really take in good root. Uh, the Gentile churches would have been utilizing Luke's gospel probably more than most. So why why another gospel? What do we need another gospel for? So those are things that we're going to talk about today. I'm actually going to share my screen with you. Uh, and get into the authorship behind this and look at some of the external evidence for it. And the reason I want to bring it on the screen today is because I want you to see some of the words that are actually in these historical testaments about the gospel, demonstrating such importance as we get in the details. So that way I want you to see it on the screen, and I'll read it out loud to you if you're watching uh, as well and can't see the screen well, or you're listening in later on the podcast facts. Uh, listen very carefully. I'll pause and elaborate on some of these sections. And then, in fact, we'll actually read a couple of sections from John's gospel that I think will help uh, bring to light some of these historical claims. Now, we've mentioned the Muratorian fragment before, and I'm going to mention it again today. We'll actually start there. It's believed to be around the end of the second century when this fragment was compiled. It was uh, discovered uh, later on by an Italian, uh, oddly enough, being an Italian myself, I love it when they actually do something good for us in the uh, historical findings and finding manuscripts particularly. He found this fragment, uh, and it was a later fragment, but we believe that this fragment can be traced back to the late second century, compiling a list of books that would be considered canonical but it didn't just give us a list. There's actually explanation to some of these things. And uh, what, one of the things that I enjoy when reading these descriptions is taking the description saying, hey, you know what? That sounds really intriguing to what we read in the Gospels. Can we actually prove them to be true? And that's what history is all about. That's what we do. We, we try to explore into these claims, whether they can be substantiated or eliminated based on the factual connections. And that's what I want to do throughout the next couple of weeks for John. Here in this section right here, you have the fourth gospel. Uh, that is of John. And the Muratorian fragment makes sure to let you know that it is one of the disciples. It is not just any John. It's John, one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, it says when his fellow disciples and bishops entreated him, he said, fast ye now with me for the space of three days and let us recount to each other whatsoever 
may be revealed to us. So there's apparently some peer pressure going on where they're trying to get John to write a gospel account. It doesn't say specifically who. It will tell us one of them in a minute. But it said some of his fellow disciples that would be insinuated by him being one of the disciples that these are still existing and living apostles. And that can be pretty much, I think, proven by the next paragraph. But it seems like some of the other apostles that were still alive were entreating John, who was one of the three, who was a part of that inner circle with his brother James, who is now obviously dead by the time this is happening. And Peter has already issued his testimony. He actually placed one in the Gospel of Mark. So now they're almost entreating him to publish one. And so he tells them, he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fast. We're going to pray for three days. We're going to come back together and let's discuss uh, what comes to mind or ideas uh, once we come up with something to do, whether we should do this or not. And, and, And it's a group effort. I want you to see this early on that this gospel at its conception, was never a one-man thing. It was a group thing. And the other disciples that were still alive at this time were behind it. And the bishops that were being trained by these disciples were behind it. They wanted it. So you have the apostolic group wants it. And you have church leaders who want another account. And and again, we're going to see in a minute, it's not because they had a problem with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which some would say he was correcting them. That's not the case. We'll see in a second why that is not the case. But they wanted for the churches another account from John's perspective. They had Peter's. They kind of had a group perspective with Matthew's eyewitness testimony. Also, that was corroborated with Peter's through Mark and the other living apostles that were in Jerusalem. And if you missed the discussion on that, please go back and watch the two episodes of Matthew. I give full detail. I believe that was a group gospel once published in Greek. Uh, I think the Hebrew gospel is particularly his personal eyewitness testimony, but the Greek version of it that we have today was a group effort from Jerusalem. So this would be another one, uh, but more so out in Asia Minor, which we'll see in a second as well. And it says on the same night, it was revealed to Andrew. This is again, why I think his fellow disciples is going to be other apostles because Andrew would have been in that group. One of the apostles that John, he tells, so he, he t- has this revealed to him. He comes to John and says that John should narrate keyword. Uh, I want you to highlight that in your mind. If you're listening and pay attention to it, if you're reading John should narrate all things in his own name as they called them to mind. Now, there's two uh, important words. The word narrate, as I pointed out, and them. Uh, They called them to mind. So John is not the only eyewitness involved in this gospel based on the Muratorian fragment. You have John who should narrate it under his name on behalf of those that recalled things to mind, which would include Andrew. Now, I want to pause right there because I think this is so important because John pulls out the stories of individual apostles that the synoptic accounts do not. Uh, From the very beginning, you have Andrew's story being told. Oddly enough, he's mentioned here in the Miratorian Fragment. In chapter one of John's gospel, it was Andrew who went out and brought Peter to Jesus. His story is being told in John's gospel, but not in the others. You have Thomas, who is mentioned quite frequently in here, uh, who would seem to have a testimony of what happened with him that is not narrated in the synoptics as well. You find other disciples, the Judas not Iscariot, who has a role or a speaking role that's not in the synoptic. So you you have other apostles, other eyewitnesses being able to engage in John's gospel that are not in the synoptic gospels, which should demonstrate to us that the Muratorian fragment may be trying to give us some hints 
that this really was a group gospel that John was the main eyewitness to, and they would narrate under his name. But notice also the word narrate. Um, I do not think John penned the gospel of John. I think he narrated it just as we see insinuated that he should do. And, and the reason I believe this is one, John is a fisherman. Um, the same reason I think Mark wrote a gospel for Peter and the same reason I think Sylvanus uh, penned the epistle of Peter for him. And one of the reasons I think second Peter is left without the name of Emmanuensis, and it is very different from first Peter because I think Peter actually did end up writing his own uh, epistle on his own behalf. And that's why there's such Greek differences between his amenuensis and himself. Now, there would have been no lacking in the area of scribes in the city of Ephesus. Some, some of the best and world's best scribes would have been available to him in Ephesus. And if he was narrating this, he would have had penmen that were fantastic in their Greek writing. Uh, I do think that John and Peter uh, would likely have eventually, I should say, eventually learned uh, how to write uh, good enough to get by, if you would. I think that's why we see in the book of Revelation, the grammar is not very great. I think actually John perhaps wrote that himself. He would have, or at least portions of it, he would have written himself based on how he remembered it. Whereas John's gospel, I think, was done by a group of scribes and he was authoring it and narrating it just as they were insinuated. So very important words there already. John should narrate these things in his own name as they called them to mind, as the group that was with John brought together their narration as well. And notice this, it says, what marvel is it then that John brings forward these several things so constantly in his epistles? And in the Miratorian Fragments can actually build on this more that it was a group effort, saying in his own person, what we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, our hands have handled that we have written. So that's first John chapter one, verse one through four, that which we've seen with our eyes, we've handled, we've touched the word of life. And these things we write to you. He was always writing on behalf of an apostolic group. The same thing is found in chapter one, verse 14 of John's gospel. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the glory of the only son. Now, so so he brings in, in the beginning of the prologue, that it is a we and an us that are delivering this message to you because we beheld his glory. We saw him. We know him. Does the same thing when he introduces the, uh, really the beginnings of his epistle as well. He's writing on behalf of a we and an us, a group a group of apostles, but yet it was narrated in his name because he would have been a star witness. And, and, and the question, so it goes back to what I said about Mark's gospel. Why? Why is it important that Matthew would have used Mark? Why is it important that Luke would have used Mark? Because Mark is Peter's testimony, oral tradition brought to written text. And it is important because he's an eyewitness, but not just an eyewitness, a star eyewitness. He was one of the inner three. He was there for events. He saw things off to the side that the others did not. But there was one other guy that was still alive that was a part of that inner three that got to see things like the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, that was with Jesus on the side, given special tasks. And not just in the inner three, but he was the closest to Jesus. This is the disciple whom the Lord loved. This is the one who leaned on Christ's breast. This is the one that laid on him and was dearest to him, close to him, had a deep-rooted relationship to him. This is the disciple who was at the cross holding a mother whose child was being crucified and was given the privilege and the responsibility to take care of Mary once Jesus died and said, your son, behold him. Son, this is your mother, behold her. That is the disciple that is a star witness in addition to what Peter already told us. 
John saw things in the inner three and in his closeness to Jesus and at his episodes at the cross when the others weren't there, at the tomb being one of the two that was there, his story needs to be written before he dies. And so they wanted to make this happen. But Andrew had some things to say. Thomas obviously had some things to say. Maybe Judas, not Iscariot, had things to say. And John wanted to tell their story along with his own. And so it says, for thus he professes himself to be not only the eyewitness, but a hearer. And besides that, the historian of all the wondrous facts. I love that being the show on podcasts is facts concerning the Lord in their order. Very important phrase as well, because in this, we note that John is the only writer to actually give an order to the events and miracles of Jesus. After he turned the water of wine, uh, he made sure to tell us at this wedding at Cana, this was the first miracle that was done amongst them to reveal God's glory in chapter two. So we see that this seems consistent with what we already have. So in summary, John was the fourth gospel written by the apostle John or narrated by the apostle John. It was motivated by his friends, his other friends, the bishops, the, the leaders of these churches and his fellow eyewitness friends. And specifically by name, Andrew, the writer is a hearer, an eyewitness and a historian of the events that took place. He wrote them down or narrated to have them written down in an orderly account. And again, this is similar to how Papias said Matthew uh, was in comparison to Mark. It seems to be consistent based on the chronology. And again, in chapter 4, verse 54 is another place, as I stated, in chapter 2, verse 11, at the wedding of Cana. But he does the same thing uh, in chapter 4, verse 54. This again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come from Judea into Galilee. So let's look at some external witnesses in addition to the Muratorian fragment. You also have the anti-Martianite prologue, which we have also talked about uh, as well. And in, in this is probably second to third century, roughly in that time frame. It states that the gospel of John was revealed and given to the churches by John while still in the body. So the gospel of John was revealed and given to the churches. So this is important. He authored it and published it to the churches, which is consistent with what we just talked about uh, in the Muratorian fragment, because there were bishops involved that were wanting this. They were asking for this testimony. And so John producing this for them was of great benefit. And so he did authorize it and allow it to be published to the churches and it was while he was alive, not after. That's that's very important. This stuff was not written after his death. This was not stuff that was published about him after he died. This is while he was alive, he was authorizing this text. Just as Papias of Heriopolis, the close disciple of John, which we, we've talked about him, especially in the beginning when we dealt with, uh, dealt with Mark's gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel. Uh, but he was a hearer of John, we learned. So he knew John. He heard John preach. He related this information that is in the last five books. That is his publications of the testimony he learned from John the Elder and Aristion. Indeed, he wrote down the gospel while John was dictating carefully. Uh, it says he wrote down the gospel while he dictated it. So if he's dictating it, he's not the actual writer as much as he is the author. He's dictating to scribes what is to be written. So it seems like the anti-Marcionite anti, uh, prologue, in addition to the Miratorian fragment, are all saying that John narrated this thing more so than wrote it, and I would agree with that. So let's go into Papias, uh, because he was just mentioned. But he, if you remember in his quotations, he never mentions John's gospel specifically. But here's a statement from uh, the History of the Church by Eusebius. It says, if then anyone came who had been a follower of the elders, this is him quoting Papias's work, I question him in regard to the words of the elders, what Andrew or what Peter said, or what was said by Philip or Thomas or by James or John. Now, Papias appears to be familiar with John's gospel from this statement. You say, well, how do you know that? That's very speculative. Well, Bauckham points out in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, that the first six names that are listed here 
are in the exact order that these individuals appear in John's gospel. Andrew's first on the scene. Peter's mentioned next. Next thing you know, Philip is mentioned in the scenery. And then Thomas and James and John. This is the order they appear in John's gospel. So it seems like he's at least a fami familiar. Irenaeus in the second century, which another very, very important uh, because he is in the family line of spiritual uh, birthing, if you would, from John. John uh, discipled Polycarp, who was left at Smyrna, as I've mentioned no, numerous times in this program. And Polycarp, who was trained by John, trained Irenaeus. Irenaeus even relates to his stories he learned from uh, Polycarp when he had spent time with John. So this is very, very close, very close in timing. It says, then after the publication of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had even rested on his breast himself also, gave forth the gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. So Irenaeus is telling us that this gospel was published after the synoptics and he was the same one just so you know which author it was, is the one who laid on Jesus' breast. It's the one that was closest to Jesus. And he wrote this or had it written and published while he was living in Ephesus. So he did this when he was in Asia Minor. It was a group effort. It was intended to be sent out to Gentiles in those churches. And it was obvious that those bishops were the ones that were motivating him to do so in that region. Tertullian, the lawyer in the second into the third century says this, we lay it down for our first position that the evangelical Testament has apostles for its authors. So he's saying, look, we, we do realize that in the gospels we have, there are two who are actually with Jesus. And he mentions John and Matthew first instill faith into us while the apostolic men, Luke and Mark renew it afterwards. Now, if you read it in the full context, and I've heard people say, well, they're saying Matthew and John are the first Gospels, and then and then uh, Luke and Mark are written later. That's that's not what, he's not saying that if you read the full context, and I'm just giving you one of the sections. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about when it comes to the apostolic authority, direct authority, you have two who have them published in their names. The other are, are issued in works of two that are not, apostles, but apostolic men, and actually like that terminology. We're going to read two from Clement of Alexandria, who is second century into third century as well. He had this to say about John's gospel. Of all those who had been with the Lord, only Matthew and John left us their recollections. And tradition says they took to writing out of necessity. Now, um, this again seems to point to the two gospels named after apostles themselves. But what he's telling us is that that was based on their testimonies. Now, they had already told us that Peter had Mark write for him and that we have Luke who had worked under Paul. But here, two had them published in their names, and it was based on their understandings and eyewitnesses, their recollections, their memories. And they did it out of necessity. Well, what would that necessity be? Well, keep in mind, when the eyewitnesses were dying, the tradition was oral for the most part. And as the eyewitnesses died off more, you lose that tradition eventually. But if you could get it in written text and it was to be sustained through copying and transmission, then you can have something viable for the churches to carry on many years after their death. And rightfully so, because we today still have these texts and we are reading them in our own languages, in modern language. So we see this as an accurate uh, decision and a good one to make. It says John used all the time a message which was not written down, meaning he he included things that were not published yet. They were in oral tradition, but they were not written yet. They weren't in the other written texts either. At last took to writing for the following cause. So why did John, here, here's the why, why did John publish another account? Why was this necessary to do this? Well, it tells us. The three Gospels, which had already been written down before, were distributed to all, including himself. Very important. I underline that for you. He knew of these other three accounts, folks. This is not something that was just, oh, well, you know, nobody else wrote anything. I need to write something. 
he was familiar with these texts as well. He knew Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not, oh, well, they blew it. Let me come in here and fix their problems. That's not what's happening here. Notice what it says. It is said he welcomed them and testified to their truth. So here's the thing. According to Clement, he didn't see a problem with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He accepted them. He welcomed them. He even, he stood behind them credibility-wise and said they're accurate. They're true. But they didn't have things that he wanted to make sure the rest of the world knew. He wanted the rest of the world to know something that he got to experience himself. And these three gospels that he approved of and testified of did not contain. He testified to their truth and said that he there was only one thing lacking. There was just really something really important that's missing in them. To the narrative, the account of what was done by Christ at first, which is the wedding of Cana, that is not mentioned in any of the synoptics. And that's why he made sure to include the phrase, this is the first. And at the beginning of the preaching. So he brings in teachings of Jesus at that point that are not included in the other gospels, including the story of John 3, which we also love greatly when he met with Nicodemus. These are things that he felt like the churches needed to have in written texts, not just oral. And that the other gospels didn't include. So he had no problem with them, but he felt like more needed to be said from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, starting with his first miracle. They say accordingly that John was asked to relate in his own gospel the period passed over in silence by the former evangelist, which he did. The areas of silence that they were in, he did not exclude, he included. Also, Clement of Alexandria said, but John, the last of all, so he is the fourth, and he realizes, notice this, Clement not only realizes he's the fourth gospel, but the last gospel, that there are no other gospels that are authentic. This, this, is, why, this is why Origen, who was in the same region at, at a point and then went to Caesarea, said there is the four gospels that are unquestionable in the churches under heaven. Universally, the churches had always received four. Um, and Irenaeus went so far as to say four and four, no more than four, no less, no more. So he realized that this was the last one and that there was no more. Seeing that what was bodily set forth in the Gospels on the entreaty of his intimate friends. So Clement of Alexandria is saying exactly what we just read, going back to the Muratorian fragment, that he was actually publishing something not on his own, but at the advice, the prayer, and the counsel, and the helps of his close friends and inspired by the Spirit. So not only did Clement recognize this was a group effort of the apostles, but that the Spirit prompted them to do this, composed a spiritual gospel. So this is a Spirit-led thing. This wasn't a man-made thing. This wasn't just men coming together and coming up with this. And the Miratorian fragment went into the detail that they fasted and prayed three days, that God would tell them, should we do this? And God motivated them in the heart to do this, dealing with the fact that Clement recognized these were spiritual. In a spiritual text, this was a gospel composed under the Holy Spirit. This goes well with the statement made by uh, Berskog that the eyewitnesses were as much interpreters as observers. Not only were they observers of what happened, they brought interpretation because that's the idea of the spiritual gospel. He's not saying, Clement's not saying, well, John's spiritual and the other three are unspiritual uh, or they're human and his is spiritual. So we have one inspired and the other three not. Not at all. He brought them all inclusive by saying the last of all, realizing the other three were necessary. Spiritual in the sense of that these were, um, they were spiritual things happening in the teachings. So John was not just recording what happened. He's explaining the significance, the spiritual impacts of those things. Because John was not just somebody who observed Jesus. He understood Jesus, maybe not in those moments while traveling with him. In fact, multiple times in scripture, they state that they did not understand these things until after his glory. In fact, this is exactly what is stated in chapter number 12 of John's gospel. It says that they did not understand these things until he revealed his glory to them later. 
So after a while, John lived not only through the eyes and the and the hands and the ears within the same proximity and household and tent and village and ship and boat with Jesus, he also was able to take what he heard and saw and witnessed and over time understand what Jesus was saying. And at places, John John becomes not just an eyewitness, but an interpreter. And I agree with Burskog. You see this play out in John's gospel more than the others. And I believe that's what Clement of Alexandria was getting at, is that there was more happening here. And when Jesus came in his triumphal entry in chapter 12, the disciples didn't understand these things. They, they, they were trying to remember these things later. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and they had done things for him. So what the disciples did is at times they're like, oh, that's what, that's why Jesus said that. He was connecting it to this. And so John becomes an interpreter as much as an observer. And I agree. Jerome. Jerome said, John, the apostle whom Jesus most loved, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the apostle whom Herod, after a Lord's passion, beheaded. So James was the brother. So, so that you're not confused about which John this is. It's John, the brother of James, who was beheaded. That's an axe. Uh, he was the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, the one whom Jesus loved. So I would say Jerome wants us to be very clear about which John is doing this. Beheaded. And then it says, most recently of all the evangelists wrote a gospel. So closest, meaning he's the last, closest to Jerome's perspective. He was the most recent of the four, meaning he was the last one to do this. Notice he's in agreement with the Miratorian fragment. Wrote a gospel at the request of the bishops of Asia. Goes consistently with what we just read. That this was done by, as Irenaeus told us, it was done in Asia Minor in Ephesus against Serinthius. So that makes sense of his prologue because it seems to really punch Gnosticism in the mouth. Serinthian became a problem. In fact, Polycarp tells Irenaeus' story uh, in his writings where uh, Polycarp was with John in Ephesus and ran into Serinthian and uh, encountered him uh, near a public bathing area. And it infuriated him because he was bringing heresy into the church. He was bringing Gnosticism, the first form of Gnosticism, into the church. And so at the request of the bishops, they want an account of Jesus that would disprove Gnosticism. If there's a gospel that does that, it's John, which is why John is later. Listen, I, I'm Gnosticism became prevalent at the end of the first century, especially Serinthianism. It became later. This gives us a timeline of when John was written. I do not believe John was written in or before 70 AD. I know there are those that believe that is the case. I know that I have some semi-preterist friends who believe all the Gospels in the New Testament were before 70 AD. I do not believe this was before 70 AD. There's too many reasons in history to exclude that from those dates. This is later. This is at a time when Serinthian is on the rise. In his heresy, he's telling us these things. They recognize it to be a later writing. I believe John was written anywhere between 80 and 90 AD. And some of the early church writers believe it was after, even later than that, after the apocalypse, which I'll show you some of those quotes in a minute. So he was doing this with the Serinthian and the dogma of the Ebionites who asserted that Christ did not exist before Mary. They, they obviously uh, have a heretical view of the Christology. On this account, he was compelled to maintain his divine nativity, which he did. He very much did in the first 14 verses alone. But there is said to have yet another reason for his work, that when he had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So again, uh, Jerome is testifying the fact that John was aware of the three Gospels before him. He approved indeed the substance of the history and declared that these things were true. That's consistent with what we saw in the anti-Marcionite prologue. He knew of their existence. He approved of their work. And indeed, the substance of the history declared that these things that were said were true, but they had been given to the history of only one year, the one that is which follows the imprisonment of John, in which he was put to death. 
So passing by this year, the events of which he had set forth by these, he related the events of earlier period before John, that's John the Baptist, was shut up into prison so that it might be manifest to those who should diligently read the volumes of the four evangelists. So John goes back earlier, as we stated, he hits the highlighted ministry teachings and miracles of Jesus that the other gospels don't pick up on until after John's imprisonment. So here's some interesting later traditions. Victorinus, late third century, wrote one of the earliest commentaries we still have available or parts of available of the apocalypse of John. He indicated that John wrote his gospel after the events of the apocalypse. Um, I don't think that's the case. And in fact, um, some of you may say, well, that's because the apocalypse was, was earlier. It was before 70 AD. Yeah, but Victorinus actually says it took place during the reign of Domitian. Victorinus is telling us that Domitian was the emperor when John wrote the apocalypse. So think about that. That would have been right after 95, 95, 96, 97, somewhere in there. And if the apocalypse was written then, he's saying that John was written after, meaning it would have been sometime near 100 AD. Now, again, I don't necessarily uh, agree with that, uh, but that's what he's telling us. Um, Epiphanius in the 4th century states that John wrote his gospel account after the apocalypse, interestingly enough, again, refusing in his humility to write a gospel, but was compelled by the Holy Spirit to do so in his old age when he was over 90 after his return from Patmos. So again, another individual is telling us that um, his tradition is that John wrote it after his vision of the apocalypse and John was over 90. And again, if you're thinking, well, that's all pre-70. Well, no, John was obviously a very young man uh, amongst the apostles. And for him to be 90 would place him toward the end of the first century, uh, very much so. Uh, number three, some of the manuscripts that cover the anti-Marcionite prologue add a, a, an additional phrase that says, while John was still in the body, after writing the apocalypse. So there are some later traditions that say that John's gospel is actually after the book of Revelation. I do not think it is. The earliest witnesses don't state that. These are later witnesses, so I'm not exactly sure I agree with that. So what makes John unique? Uh, his eyewitness testimony is so important because he has an inclusio eyewitness testimony along with what we talked about in Mark doing that for Peter. So let's get into some of the intrinsic a little bit. So that's the external. We'll highlight some of the intrinsic. We'll get into some of the internal evidence. And then next week, we'll pick back up on this and we'll actually continue through the gospel. But let's talk about this. The inclusio eyewitness testimony. Bauckham gives a few examples that I'd like to elaborate on. In fact, I, I actually built on his uh, thoughts in his books, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Number one, in John's gospel, Peter is no longer the primary witness. If you remember Mark's gospel at the very beginning, you have Peter is the main, the first and the last. So he shows up. He's the first one by name on the scene. And he is the last one mentioned when the group is given, tell the others, tell my brethren and tell Peter, making sure that Peter is the beginning and the end of the bookends of eyewitness testimony. And then you come to John, and it's not that at all. Peter's no longer the eyewitness testimony that's primarily focused on, as you see in Mark. He is the first and the last disciple to appear on the scene. Now, John is left anonymous in chapter in the beginning of chapter one. He is uh, Andrew's mentioned there, but. He's a left, there's another disciple that's left anonymous. But if you actually follow through and read the rest of the narration all the way to the very end, you find out that that guy was actually the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, and he just did not name himself on purpose. Again, folks, <clears throat> uh, to continue to disrupt the, well, none of the four gospels have their names in it. They should have wrote their names in it. We give them their names later. This is a first century biography. I've already demonstrated other places in history where individuals that are not biblical writers writing a biography on behalf of somebody else discredited their names in the documents for the sake of highlighting an individual, which the Gospels would be Christ. Uh, we see testimony of this. Uh, Xenophon did these types of things in, in the ancient Greek writings. We see Josephus do these things in places. His writing when he's involved in a situation versus not being involved in a situation are very, very different. They are following 
a standard first century setup of a biography, but they are making their testimony known cryptically. That's why he gives himself a code name. Matthew gave himself an epithet. They, they give themselves descriptions, titles. Mark gives you multiple hints of the inclusio eyewitness testimony. John does the same thing. And even at the very end, kind of says, and this is the disciple who's writing to you. If you didn't get the hint before, he flat out tells you by the end. He's the first disciple and the last. He starts on the scene anonymous and then ends with his own statement and what Jesus said to him. So he gets the first word and the last word when in Mark's gospel, Peter was the first and he got the last demonstrating authorship and eyewitness testimony through inclusio eyewitness testimony. Chapter 15, verse 27 indicates the witness was with Jesus from the beginning and that the view of the literary parallelism, as I stated earlier, from 135 to 21, verse 2 and verse 7, the writer gets the last word in John 21, 24 through 25. And Peter gets the last in Mark 16, 7. The beloved disciple gave witness to Jesus before Peter became a disciple and continues to bear witness after Peter. It could be very well what Jesus was indicating in chapter 21, verse 24 through 25. So what John's telling us is he was a disciple before Peter was. He was with Jesus longer. He got, he got time with Andrew to spend in Jesus's tent. He saw things. He was a part of things that, that the others were not. And he remained a disciple long after Peter. Peter was executed toward the end of the 60s. John carried on. It could be that it's demonstrating that he was a disciple of Jesus before and after Peter, just as he presents himself before and after Peter. And I think that's what's being interpreted in chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who's testifying about these things because Jesus told Peter, follow me. You follow me. And Peter looks over and says, well, the guy that's leaning on your uh, chest over here, uh, what about him? What, what about this guy? <laughs> Peter, so Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this account went out among the brothers that that disciple would not die. Yet, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? So John is actually excluding some first century rumors um, that Jesus was saying, well, the disciple whom Jesus loves is on his breath. He's never going to die. He's going to live until Jesus comes back. And John's saying, no, he was using a hypothetical. Like if I want him to do that, I'll let it happen. That doesn't affect you. You follow me. That's the point. And you say, well, how do you, how could John say that's what Jesus meant? Remember, He's not just an eyewitness. He's an interpreter. But John says it because he's him. <laughs> Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John said, ah, many, many, many other things I could have told you. But there's no way <clears throat> the world could contain all of it. Very, very important. A discussion, but it looks like this is indicating that John would be a disciple before he was a type before Peter and would be one even long after. And John understood that's what Jesus was saying there about some protective anonymity. We looked at some of these when we dealt with Mark and just kind of a way of repeat and review Mary who anointed Jesus's feet. It's very interesting because um, her work and her act was so phenomenal that her name would be carried in her act everywhere the gospel went. That's what Jesus said in the synoptics. Just one problem. Uh, none of those three accounts mentioned her name. The readers would have known, but the writers did not mention her name. Why? Well, we talked about why there was protection going on, that the writers that were writing early on were protecting individuals. 
that once they died, by the time John is writing, they're probably already dead. Releasing their name brings no harm to them in publicized uh, or published documents. So, it, and John actually assumes you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he states in chapter 11, verse 2, this is the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet. The only problem with that is John doesn't tell the story about that until chapter 12, verse 3. But he assumes you already know that because he's assumed you already read the synoptic accounts. Mark's gospel did not disclose her name, but acknowledged her act is so great that Jesus, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Yet her name is not mentioned in any of the synoptics. Why is this significant since John doesn't tell her story until later? He could have been protecting Mary because she was the sister of a wanted man, Lazarus. Remember in John 11, after he's resurrected, the Jews wanted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. He was a walking miracle. The man was dead almost four days, into four days, and his body was decaying and already had the stench of death. And he was now alive, walking, eating, and enjoying friendships and family. And he was a wanted man. I think Lazarus was uh, being anonymously given by Mark personally. This could be related to the last example. <clears throat> There's one more example of this connection, the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, which I mentioned in uh, the episode of Mark, if you want to go back and watch that. Bauckham indicates that this is possible, as do I, that the unnamed man in Mark 14, 51, who ran away naked after his cloak was, was snatched, it, would, it wouldn't be Mark, as I stated before. Papias said that he didn't see him. He was not a witness. He was not with Jesus. He was a disciple of those who were. But, it could be that the man was left unnamed and ran off because he was protecting. Mark was protecting him, and that would have been Lazarus. And think about it. Only two people were wanted by the time Gethsemane came. The, the high priest servants did not come out and just grab all of them. They grabbed Jesus. Why did they grab this other guy? I asked this question during uh, the discussion. Of Mark. Why did they grab this other guy? They didn't grab Peter. They didn't grab John. They didn't grab James. They didn't grab Andrew. They didn't, they didn't grab Matthew. Why did they grab this other guy? Because there were two people on their wanted list. <laughs> if you go back to chapter 11 and 12 of John, and I believe it was Lazarus who slipped away uh, out of their sight. Also, Peter and Malchus, we mentioned this as well. John 18, 10 through 11 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. He was unnamed by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the garden. Uh, Peter was not mentioned as the guy that swung the sword. It just says one of the disciples. John had no problem telling us it was Peter. Again, uh, very important detail because he would be admitting. Peter would be admitting uh, to trying to kill somebody because Peter was not aiming for the guy's ear. He was trying to kill him. <laughs> he was aiming for his head. It was attempted murder. If he was trying to do this and he admitted to it in a document, um, that's admittance. And I think I said it before. I think Jesus healing Malchus's ear was actually an act of mercy against Peter, protecting him uh, from having to be hauled off into prison. But they left him unnamed. John has no problem revealing both Peter as the one who swung the sword and also the man whose ear was chopped off, Malchus. And I think uh, it's important to note that. And I think that these men, these individuals are dead. I know by the time that John's writing, uh, we, we would say for, for good evidence that John is writing long after Peter's dead. Peter died in, like I said, the late 60s under Nero. So you don't have him to protect anymore. All right? You don't need to protect him. Now, John unveils his name here in John and in John 18, 25 through 27. John 18, 25 to 27 is around the campfire. This is when the great betray the, the great denial of Peter comes after the cock crows three times. And in verse number 25, it says, Now Simon Peter was still standing and warming himself. So they said, You are the you are, are, are not the one of the disciples as well, are you not? He denied it. He said, I am not one of the slaves of the high priest who is related to one of those whose ear Peter cut off. Catch it. Catch it. John is telling us something happened at this camp campfire that the other Gospels did not. 
one of the people that pressed Peter was a relative of Malchus who had his ear chopped off. And when the relative asked the question, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. John wants you to know that at that campfire, it wasn't just like, well, Peter was afraid to get arrested and be associated with Jesus. It was not only that, but he was afraid of being identified as the one who swung the sword. Remember, it's dark. They're coming with lanterns. And the guy whose ear got chopped off, his cousin, you know, close relative, whoever it was, was sitting at the campfire with Peter. And when that person, the third time, said, no, I've seen you, Peter denied that third time. And John wants you to know that he was not just afraid to be associated with Jesus. He was afraid of being identified with an act of murder, attempted murder. So this is a beautiful, to me, book. I, I just absolutely love getting into John's gospel, seeing the narration of it from the beginning, its origin, its conception. We, we really have a beautiful text in front of us. And, and it seems to be from all that we have that God truly, by miraculous events and the movement of the Spirit, gave us this gospel and I'm, we're very appreciative of the gospel of John. It's, it's impactful. Many people have come to Christ through the testimony of Jesus in its gospel, especially John three sixteen, and that passage of being born again. We have a beautiful, beautiful picture of Christ from the one who laid on Jesus's breast from the one who was with Jesus from day one out of all the apostles. He got to share the story of Andrew. He got to share the story of Thomas. He got to share the story of Judas, uh, who is not Judas Iscariot. He got to share his own intimacy and his moments of intimacy with Jesus where he was close to him and heard him and dis discussed things with him and showed him the wondrous things like on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was able to finally put that into a text for us. So this is the historical setting for John. This is some of the intrinsic reliability of it. We see consistency. We'll keep building our case next week as we get into John. Uh, please, if you uh, enjoy these videos, I, I ask that you like them on YouTube. Uh, you could also share them on other platforms, whether you want to share it on social media or with friends uh, that may be interested in this information. Uh, if you would look down on your screen, you'll see a like button. And then on to the right of that, you'll see a possibility to subscribe. Uh, to explore Christianity. If you have not done that yet, please like and subscribe us. If you'd like to follow our content, any other videos, you can find them there on YouTube. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, and you can also find a lot of our written material and even our itinerary and our work that we're doing with college students and campus students in Texas right now. Uh, you can find a lot of that information on explorechristianity.net. Again, thank you for tuning in. We trust the Lord will use this video and advance his gospel in the work that the Lord has called us to do here at Explore. Uh, again, to those who are tuning in through the podcast facts, uh, thanks for tuning in. Also, I ask that you like and share uh, those, uh, those podcasts to your friends that they may be aware of them as well. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.